So we're in Matthew chapter 3 this morning. We're going to read that and then pray, and uh, we, will, we will hear what the Lord has to say to us in his word. So Matthew chapter 3 begins this way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning And we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us clearly in your word. There are words that we hear that are startling or seem threatening. And yet, a sign that says, beware of dog, conveys a grace in it, in that it warns us. It warns us away. It it warns us ahead of time. And so we, we thank you for this word that comes from your servant, Matthew, speaking of what your servant, John, spoke of. And we pray that, that we would hear and receive the message of repentance and that we would not see that as something which is burdensome, The Bible says your commands are not burdensome. May we see it as something life-giving. May we see it as something that warns us and shows us where we should not go and how we should not live. And in doing that, points us in the direction that we should go. And that as we run from sin and self and ego and self-exaltation and many idols, as we turn from those things, we will be running to you. And so we pray that we would see harsh words as a grace and not as condemnation. We pray that, that grace 
and the hearing of your words would lead to life. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I've had the opportunity to go to Zambia three times, and three times I've uh, been able or been forced to ride on what they call Gospel Link Road. If you've been to Zambia, then Gospel Link Road is, uh, is familiar to you. If you've not, uh, maybe you've heard me talk about it, but let me just give you a, a quick refresher. Uh, in Zambia, you land at the airport, and then you ride on what is called the tarmac. That's the, uh, the paved sections, uh, and they call the tarmac, uh, the tarmac, I'm sure because that means paved areas. Um, but there is there's a, a, a very dramatic distinction between what is tarmac and what is not in Zambia. Um, you ride for about an hour out of the uh, city of Lusaka, and you're heading up to the, the place where the, the Bible college is called Kazemba. And at some point, you, you come to the end of the tarmac and make a right turn and get onto Gospel Link Road, which uh, ends or begins at the end of the tarmac and ends at the Bible College. And while it's a much shorter distance than, than the distance leaving the city, uh, it takes an enormous amount of time to travel that road because the road is a mess. Uh, when the rainy season comes, there are uh, tremendous floods, and so what happens is the road gets washed away, and large rocks are exposed, and, uh, and deep gullies get dug uh, by, by the power of the water moving dirt away, and so you've got to basically weave up this road for two hours, or so it seems. Um, when, I, when I land in, in Zambia, it's usually in the afternoon, and then we go and exchange money and then we go and eat dinner, and so when we leave, it is dark, and so this journey is generally taken in the dark. I don't sleep well on planes, and so this is about the time when it's just overwhelming, and uh, I am just, uh, you know, cannot stay awake. I call this zombia mode, you know, where you're just, you're in a, in a haze. And, uh, and so traveling up Gospel Link Road for the first time in 2012 with my friend Billy, I just felt... Like, this was the most torturous experience I had ever had. I'm, a, I'm, I'm trying to sleep. Billy keeps, like, hitting me and saying, look, a hut. Look, some Zambians. Look, some, some fire, you know. And I'm like, leave me alone and let me sleep. But the whole time, you're bouncing and, and being uh, thrown back and forth in the truck. And there are times where if you're trying to sleep and you're leaning up against the wall that you, you, you bump this way and then you come flying back and so you're smashing yourself against the wall. It's a, it's a torturous journey. And people say the same thing every time. I've heard it three times at least. Someone needs to fix this road. Someone needs to do something about this. Somebody needs to, uh, to figure out a way of, of making this road smoother. Why don't, they, why don't they pave this road? And the response is the cost and the effort and the energy involved would be enormous. If the President of the United States or the president of, of Zambia, let's say, were to decide that they were going to make a trip to this place, somebody would do something about that road. Somebody would fix 
the road. Um, it's interesting because after, after years of hearing, I guess this is four years now of, of, of hearing complaints about the road, they are actually um, bringing bulldozers in to, to move the dirt and to break up the hard ground because what's left after the water washes away, um, the, the loose dirt is just the hardest packed stuff you can possibly imagine. Uh, enormous boulders and so they're, they're bringing in these bulldozers to clear the path to uh, unbumpify the road, to make it smooth. Well, the Bible speaks about the fact that when the Messiah was to come, that when, when Messiah was to make his way into the world, when he was to come, he would be preceded by someone who would prepare the way for him, who figuratively would, would make the road unbumpy, who would, would raise the valleys, would fill them in, and would tear down the mountains, and would, would smooth the path for the Lord. And so we see in this section, as we're moving through this, this introduction to Matthew, as we meet the Messiah, we see a witness who comes and says, I am here to prepare the way. If you consider what we've studied so far in Matthew, from the beginning of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 2, we've been treated to a section identifying the king. Who is he? Where does he come from? Um, and that's chapter 1, who is he? Chapter 2 is where does he come from? And now we move to a section, chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 11, the, the king's preparation, preparing things for his ministry. And so this morning we're going to meet the first of four witnesses that are going to prepare the way for the Lord. And as we do that, um, I believe that the Lord is going to speak to us. So we see the coming of this messenger. The Bible says this, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So we see this man, John, come. He begins his, his preaching out in the wilderness in the region uh, surrounding Judea and, uh, or Jerusalem, and he has a simple message that comes in two parts. But before we consider that, I just wonder how this, how this started. How does a guy who's not in a city, who's not hanging out a, a sign or, you know, unable to message all his friends on his phone saying, hey, I'm going to be starting a ministry. How does he, how does he begin? And I think it probably started with John out in the wilderness and some guy walking along the road, a caravan perhaps, or maybe just a singular guy. And John was like, hey, Hey, you! And he just preached at him. Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the guy must have walked away and been like, that was the craziest thing I ever saw. What's up with that? You know, maybe he shared with somebody. And then the, the crowd began to increase and grow. As, as people, some people might be like, let's go find out what this guy's all about. And there's, there's no TV, right? There's, there's no uh, Disney World. There's no vacation destinations. These are, these are poor people. And so when something happens, they probably go to check it out. And so, so he was out there in the wilderness preaching. 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He comes, the Bible says, according to prophecy. Um, He comes according to a, a quote from the book of Isaiah. He is a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. The Lord is coming. The Lord would would come. The book of Malachi says that the Lord whom they were expecting would come into his temple. And so John is perhaps the most expected figure in Jewish history because once they see and identify this man, they know that Messiah will follow shortly after. And so he comes according to prophecy. He also comes in the spirit and and the dress and the appearance of Elijah, but not with the power of Elijah, because there are no miracles that I know of ascribed to John. He dresses like Elijah in rough clothing. He's got a strap of leather around his waist, and he dresses in camel's hair. His food is locusts. He eats bugs. And he, he digs into to, to beehives and pulls out honey and eats that. Uh, he lives an austere, poor, dependent on God kind of lifestyle. Uh, this is not a, a rich man. He is not uh, well cared for and well supplied in terms of his ministry. He's, he lives a simple life and he has a simple message. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is repentance? We're going to get into an expanded definition as, as we move through this passage, but let me tell you what it is simply. It is not a change of mind. It's not to say, um, I have, I have, uh, consumed Pepsi products all my life until this point, and now I have seen the light and I drink only Coke. It is not, um, I, am, I am abandoning one brand of coffee, inferior coffee, perhaps Starbucks, and, and switching over to, to superior coffee, to Dunkin' Donuts. It's not just changing your mind, right? And it's not just saying, uh, I've done wrong and I need to punish myself for my wrong. It's not penance. And it's not just grief. It's not, man, I've disappointed God. It is to be sorry or to, to experience sorrow for one's actions to such a significant level that, that there is a turnaround and an embracing of a new mentality and new actions. It's a radical transformation from someone who is in need of dramatic change in their life. It's a, a fundamental turnaround for someone whose actions and way of living is profoundly off course. That's repentance. We'll get into an expanded definition in just a few moments. But let's look at what John says is the ground or the basis for this repentance. He says, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent because the kingdom is almost here. Matthew speaks of the kingdom of heaven. Other gospels speak 
of the kingdom of God. And Matthew uses that expression as well to, to describe the idea that humanity has lived in its own way. Humanity has lived in rebellion to God. They have embraced sins. They are uh, under bondage to the devil. They follow the path of the world. Ephesians 2 would say they are dead in sins and trespasses. But the kingdom of God is the rule of God breaking in to this world system. Um, a rebellion, an overthrow is taking place. God is touching down in the world and bringing change. And here, within this sphere, within this kingdom, God rules. What does Jesus teach his disciples to pray eventually? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth here in your kingdom as it is in heaven. In heaven, all creatures, all beings obey God's will. On earth, not so much. But may that increase. The kingdom touches down. And what John is saying is that the kingdom is coming, and that means that judgment is coming. And so he's calling all beings to account and giving them the news that they are to repent. This would be Jesus' message as well. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The disciples would be sent. Matthew 10, 7. Proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. It's starting. What people have been waiting for, the rule of God in the world, is upon us. In Matthew 12, 28, Jesus says, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, because demons cannot stand where God rules. And so God is breaking back in to this world that is fallen and sinful. And that means that all those who will will find themselves in opposition to this kingdom as it comes will either repent or they will suffer judgment. And we'll see more of that in a moment. The reaction we see to John's teaching is in verses 5 and 6. All then Jerusalem, it says, and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This was a, a surprising event and, and there was great excitement around the ministry of John and great numbers of people went out to be baptized by him and there was great confession of sins and so there's an enormous reaction a tremendous revival when this man comes preaching Hosea chapter 10 verse 12 says this sow for yourselves righteousness reap steadfast love break up your fallow ground for it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. John tells the people, the kingdom of heaven is coming. God is coming and when his rule comes, you will either be judged or you will be blessed. And so repent that you would not be swept away. And so the challenge that John throws down to all people from all time from that moment is that the messenger 
when he arrives, says the kingdom will soon arrive. And that means that we must respond. We need to shake off our complacency and our settledness in whatever ways in which we're going astray of the will of God and to sow seeds of righteousness in our lives that we might reap the steadfast love of God. It's time, John says, to seek the Lord because righteousness is coming. And we want to be acceptable to him. John teaches us, or Matthew is teaching us through through the ministry of John, that we need to be willing to repent in order to survive when the kingdom of God comes. And in order, well, when the kingdom of God comes, we need to leave behind superficiality and hypocrisy. We see this in verses 7 through 10. John says, when it's Matthew says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, John said to them, you brood of vipers. In terms of biblical imagery, you probably can't think of a bigger or a worse insult, right? The the wicked ancient serpent that led the world astray in Genesis chapter three, uh, he is is the chief and primary enemy of all believers, the Bible says. And here, John is calling the Pharisees and the Sadducees children of, of snakes. This is a horrible insult to them. Who warned you, he says, to flee from the wrath to come? Who told you that you were supposed to run away? You know, you are not invited here, is what he's saying to them. You, you, you think that you're going to escape? He's challenging them. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now you might say, this is pretty rude of John. What's up with this preacher guy with his bullhorn, right? Shouting at people and saying to them, how dare you come out here? Well, what is known of John, I mean, what is known of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees already by John will be evidenced throughout the rest of the gospel, throughout the rest of the book of Matthew. They will display character and actions which will say over and over again that John was right to judge them the way that he did. They come the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders to say, we are ready for the Messiah to come. Look at us. We're, we're here. We're, we're doing what we're commanded to. We're supposed to come and to be baptized so that Messiah can come. Because the forerunner is here. We see his evidence that, that he is coming, that, 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 that this man is calling us to account. And so here we are. But John says to them, You're not bearing fruit that's consistent with repentance. There's a superficial repentance. We'll see this later on. Jesus will describe the Pharisees and the way that they pray, that they love to stand out on the street corners and to pray. So people will be like, oh, he's religious. When they give offerings, right, they probably give many coins. Right? Have you ever heard somebody dumping those coins into that Coinstar machine at the supermarket? You know, I don't, my wife can tell you, I don't like loud noises. You know? 
and, and I'm in the supermarket checkout line, and somebody's just dumping coin after coin, and I'm like, oh, make it stop. That's kind of the way that they would give. They, they give alms. It's, uh, uh, Jesus says that they blow a trumpet before them, right? You know, imagine if somebody came in here with a big gallon bag of coins one Sunday morning to show how much they were giving, and they just dumped it, and you heard all that noise. You'd be like, what's going on over there? And when you look, somebody's there like this. And they say, they say, they're all Susan B. Anthony's, right? You know, they're all $1 coins. Look at what I just gave. They, they were superficial. They were, they were putting on a show. They were to bear fruit that was in keeping with repentance and not just to act like they were repenting. Somebody would go to a Pharisee and say, have you sinned before the Lord in a way that you need to repent? And they would say, no, I am righteous. I have done what the law commands. But anyone who comes to Christ knows that that what the law does is it teaches them that they are a sinner and that they would be lost if God judged them on the basis of their actions. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.10 says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Because the Bible says that we have all sinned. And so to come out to repent and to not actually be repenting of ever anything is not repentance. John challenges the basis of what they believe they will be accepted on, the idea that they are children of Abraham. He says, don't appeal to the fact that you are Abraham's descendants. Don't say we have Abraham as our father because God can and he will, we'll learn in the gospel, call many to himself from among the Gentiles. God is able from these stones. I imagine John preaching in the midst of, a, of an area where there's a tremendous amount of water and there's perhaps some, some stones or rocks sticking up out of the water. And he says, from these stones, God can make children of Abraham. Don't don't claim that you're related to him. Instead, do the deeds that Abraham did. Abraham believed God, and righteousness was given to him, and so believe that righteousness can come from God. Throwing back to an analogy from the book of Isaiah about Israel, that, that God had planted a vineyard and he cared for it, but the plants never produced any fruit. In that story, um, the axe is laid to the trees and the trees are all cut down and the, the garden is replanted. John says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so that something new can be planted in its place, right? So that the ground can produce what it's supposed to. So he says, bring forth fruit that's consistent with repentance. What does true repentance look like? I'm thankful that in a, uh, I think it was an offhand remark in Sunday school, uh, John Render mentioned Thomas Watson's book, The Doctrine of Repentance, and that was just such a joy uh, to, to discover and read. And uh, Watson, I'm going to c- compress probably about 30 or 40 pages into just a little section of notes here. Because he, he explains in great detail what true repentance looks like. 
In order to repent, Thomas Watson says we, we must uh, see six things which are laid out in the scriptures. There, there are six stages or components of repentance. The first is sight of sin. Sight of sin. In Luke 15, 17, we, we see the son, the prodigal son, run away. And what does he do? He spends all his father's money. He insults his father, takes what is to be his inheritance, and he goes and he spends it in what I believe the King James Version calls riotous living. And eventually he's reduced to the point where he's going to eat the food of pigs. I love the, uh, the Jesus storybook Bible that we read to Hank, right? The, the, the prodigal son has actually got his tongue out there and he's leaning over into the trough like this like and he's like just a a tiny bit away from the food and he says what am I doing where he he realizes what he's doing Luke 15 17 says when he came to himself he said how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread but here I am perishing with hunger he suddenly realized what am I doing? He became aware of how he had sinned against his father and how desperate his condition was. Sight of sin. Second, sorrow for sin. Psalm 38, 18 says, I will confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. That that sorrow would grow in our heart, that we would say, oh, I have I have sinned against God. I have sinned against the people around me. I have, I have sinned against the, the dignified image of God that God created in me. And I have, I have squandered and wasted my life in pursuing sin. Zechariah 12.10 speaks about the sorrow that comes when, when we consider what has happened to the Son of God because of our sin. Zechariah 12.10, they will look on me, on him who they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. There's a very famous painting by Rembrandt called The Raising of the Cross. And if you look at that painting, big, beautiful painting, kind of dark in some places. And so, so there's the cross and, and the cross is being raised up and, and there is Jesus probably at the, the, the pinnacle or, or the, the beginning of his pain physically as the cross is raised, um, which must have been a very uh, a difficult thing to physically experience. And, and you can see the crowd of Roman soldiers and, and Jewish leaders pushing the cross up so it can be, can be steadied. They would drop some rocks into the hole to, to hold the, the, the cross in place. And if you, if you look at the painting, you'll notice that somebody is out of place. That there is this 15th or 16th century Flemish painter painted into the picture pushing the cross up. And it's Rembrandt himself painted into the picture. He realizes that my sins are what put Christ on the cross. Sorrow for sin follows sight of sin. Third, confession of sin. Second Samuel 24, 17, David says, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. There are sins in my life. I have, I have sinned against the Lord and I've sinned against others and I need to come before the Lord and to say, Lord, I have sinned in these ways and so there's an owning and a confessing of 
sin. I think at this point, many people are are afraid to confess and to acknowledge the sins of their past, that that they perhaps wasted many years in sin, whether it's, it's what, what some people would consider uh, big kinds of sins or even just little sins of greed or, or envy or of, of being difficult or of fighting or of judging people. Fear of confession, I think, flows from this idea that if we confess our sins in the sight of God, he will destroy us. If we acknowledge, yes, this is wrong, that will lead to immediate judgment. But the truth is, I believe our criminal justice system is modeled on what we can find in Scripture, that that conviction and sentencing are separate. That to come before the Lord and say, yes, I have sinned, does not immediately lead to conviction. Because what does the Bible say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. Does that make sense? If we confess our sins, we think we will be destroyed. We will be judged. But if we confess our sins, God will forgive us because that is what he's promised. If we repent and we come to him and we confess our sins, then he will give us the righteousness of Christ. So sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin. Watson then says we must experience shame for sin. 1 Corinthians 11.31 If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. He takes quick spiritual stock of himself. And I believe he moves rapidly through these steps. Sight of sin. He experiences sorrow. Woe is me, I am undone. And he begins to confess, I'm a man of unclean lips. But he acknowledges the fact that he deserves punishment and separation for what he's done. He owns the punishment. Yes, this is what I deserve. It's not like I confessed. I owned it, right? Therefore, you should set me free. You should let me go. You shouldn't hold me to account. It's, it's I, I give myself to you. I put myself under your judgment. I place myself into your hand and I say, have mercy on me because I do not deserve grace. Ezra, in chapter 9 of Ezra, verse 6, he is confessing, uh, he's praying a public prayer of repentance on behalf of the people. And he says, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. The sentence should be destruction. And so there's deep shame experienced on behalf of the the person who is repenting. Sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, and then hatred for sin. The catechism that we include in the bulletin, when it speaks of repentance, it says, what is repentance? It is to hate your sin and to forsake it. 
Ezekiel 36, 31 says, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Psalm 119, verse uh, 104, perhaps says it in a way that's a little more consistent with our own desire to at least retain some scrap of self-esteem, like not like I hate myself forever. It says, um, Psalm, that was supposed to be a joke. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 104 says, through your precepts, I get understanding. I, I begin to know and acknowledge and, and embrace the ways of God. Therefore, I hate every false way. In the past, I would go this way to control my environment or to feel comfortable or to gain the approval of others or to have a feeling of power. I would, I would do these things, but now because I've, I've seen the sinfulness of them and I realize that they separate me from God, now I hate these things and I commit to embrace only the way of the Lord. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Have you ever had that experience where, where you are walking with the Lord and perhaps your circumstances change and and you are carried away by your emotions or by the, the, the difficulty of the situation that you're in, and suddenly you realize that, that you have left behind the way of the Lord, and you've, you're not walking by the Spirit anymore, you're walking by the flesh, and you say, how am I in this place again? When will I ever learn? I hate this. Why do I do this? That's a good sign. That's a good sign. Paul says in Romans 7 that, that he would do the very thing that he hated. That, that when he tried to do what was good, that, that, that what was evil was right there with him. And he hated that. It's because he is in the process of repenting. It's because repentance was happening at that moment. Finally, stage six, according to Watson, is turning from sin. Ezekiel 14.6, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols. Turn away your faces from all your abominations. Isaiah 55.7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon such good news there. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man leave his, his sinful way of thinking behind. Let him return to the Lord. Why? If we acknowledge our sins, what happens to us? We're undone. No. When we return to the Lord, the Lord will have compassion on us. He will abundantly pardon. As he begins the book of uh, First Thessalonians, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 9, that the faith of the Thessalonians had resounded throughout the region, that, that people everywhere had heard of their faith, and he says that we don't even need to preach the gospel in these regions because people know about you. They've heard about your testimony. Verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 1 says, They themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us 
from the wrath to come. Repentance must go deep. It needs to be more than just a a scratch on the surface of our spiritual skin. It needs to go all the way down to the spiritual bone. It needs to go, go deep. It can't just be superficial or hypocritical. It can't just be like, yup, Jesus, that's the way to heaven. It needs to be a bringing before the Lord all that we find that's inconsistent with his way. My professor, Dr. Larkin, used to say that repentance is submitting all that we know of ourselves to all that we know about God. That we don't hold anything back, we say, I am, I am deserving of judgment. I come before you and I, I forsake I forsake it all. I hate it and I'm going to follow you. And instead of being judged, which is what we would naturally think would happen, we receive grace and mercy. What a tremendous gospel promise in 1 John 1, 9. God has said in Isaiah 55 verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. This is why 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is it faithful and just? Because God has said over and over, when you come to me in repentance, I will forgive you. And he keeps that promise. So we see that it cannot be hypocritical or superficial. The forerunner, as we we come to the end of this section here, the forerunner preaches but he, he does not act. He's the, he's the opening act to the main show that's coming when Jesus arrives. Uh, he's warming up the crowd. He's, he's getting them ready. John embraces the path of humility and says, it's not about me. You need to repent. It needs to not be superficial. It needs to be now. You need to shake off your, your complacency. You need to break up your fallow ground. You need to be ready to return to the Lord. But it's, this is not about me. Don't think that this saves you. Get ready. He says this in verse um, 11. He's telling them to not delay because Messiah is coming and when he comes, he will act. Verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John says, this is not about me. Don't turn me into something. It's about him who is coming. The water baptism that's administered here is a symbol designed to bring on a spirit of repentance, but it's not the goal. There's a true baptism that's coming. Paul will say in Romans, do you not know that those of you who've been baptized have been baptized into Christ? It's an earthly symbol of a spiritual reality of being united with him, 
Paul says we're buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Messiah, when he comes, will bring real spiritual life. He'll baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now there's a lot of pages and commentaries on what this means. People go two directions, okay? They say the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit and fire because fire comes down on Pentecost, okay? That's, that's what one school says. And I say they're wrong. Um, the, the other way of looking at this is that the Holy Spirit comes and brings life and fire comes bringing punishment. So one group says this is Holy Spirit baptism at Pentecost. I say no, and here's my singular line defense of that. Because when Messiah is described in verse 12, he comes clearing the threshing floor, separating the wheat from the chaff. One gets burned and one gets saved. So that's just, that's my defense of that. I, there are pages upon pages upon pages written by smarter guys than me, and they would probably say, you're wrong and here's why. And I, I wouldn't be able to disagree with them, but I would walk away thinking, no, you're still wrong. Um, so anyway, th- think about what he's saying here. Messiah is coming and he's bringing Holy Spirit life with him. This is what we believe, or at least what I believe. Adam had life. He was a living being. God breathed life into Adam. And when Adam sinned, he died, but he didn't die. He kept on living, but he was dead, though he was alive. He was separated and alienated from God. And John is saying, Messiah comes with the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring dead men back to life. But it's not just a mission of Mercy, it's a mission of mercy and judgment. He comes with a fork in his hand, not a, not a dinner fork, but a, a winnowing fork. What they would do is they would, they would take a, a large bar and they would throw all the grain that they'd harvested uh, on, onto a, a flat piece of ground, a hard, flat piece of land called a threshing floor, and they would run, they would drag this iron bar over it, it would roll, and they'd connect it to an ox, and, and, and the grain would be cracked, and the husks would come off of the grain, and then somebody would go through it with this fork, this like shovel-like thing, and they'd throw the grain up into the air, and the, and the heavy, thicker grain would land back down on the ground, but the husk that was useless, that you'd have to break off of each individual piece, would blow away in the wind. And they would land somewhere else. Messiah, when he comes, John says, is going to clear the threshing floor. He's going to keep the wheat. But the chaff he's going to shovel up and to throw into the fire. And so here is the message of repentance, which is harsh to some, but is grace to those who can hear it. Judgment comes with the Messiah. So don't delay. Because for all who will say, I have sinned in your sight, God. Please be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what Luke says, that the tax collector says. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That man goes home justified, Luke says. But the tax collector who says, I'm so glad I'm not like other sinners. I tithe, I do good. But he acknowledges no need of his own need to be forgiven and saved. That man does not go home justified. And so the encouragement to you this morning is to put your faith and trust in Christ. John says this in 1 John chapter 1, this is the message that we heard from him, from Jesus, and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's good news. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is in us. We are sinners. But if we confess our sins, verse 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Such good news. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The consuming, purifying fire that Messiah brings will sweep across the whole of humanity. But those who've put their faith and trust in Christ and who've repented will be saved and preserved through judgment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share this word. We thank you for John who came and who must have been like a whirlwind for the Jewish people who felt that they were righteous in and of themselves because they were basically good people. They were pretty much doing all the things that God told them to. They weren't breaking any of the Ten Commandments, although they were. They needed salvation. They needed to repent. They needed to come to you and to say, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's who we are today. We're in need of you. Even those who have have taken that initial step and repented need to continuously come to you when sin creeps in and to repent afresh. As Martin Luther said, the daily duty of the Christian is to renew repentance because the living sacrifice crawls off off, off of the altar. We pray, Father, for any who are in this room who have not said, I am a sinner that they would hear the truth of the word of God and that they would embrace your way and your will and that they would indeed repent. We pray that your grace would be abundant in our lives and we pray that we would believe the words of scripture that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, every sin forgiven when we repent humbly. We pray your grace as we sing this last song and as we go out into the world. Father, may we come as those with a message who are told to tell the world that God loves them, that he is willing to reconcile with them, that he will save them if they will own their sins. Then God will give them the righteousness of your son. And so we pray that we would speak and minister with grace to all who need to hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together.